The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven. I'll read the the text and then we'll pick up the context. First Corinthians chapter seven and verse eight, Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Well, we come to... um, The next section, if you remember last week, we talked about how this uh, little expression in verse 1, so Paul says, now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that is a Corinthian slogan, right? And the idea is there was kind of floating around this notion that it was good, it was spiritually superior not to have sexual relations with uh, a woman. Now, the context for that really ends up being um, uh, marriage. That's Paul's, um, the rest of chapter uh, 7 verses 2 through 5 is going to demonstrate that Paul actually has in view marriage. So in all likelihood, what you had is you had um, couples, um, maybe instigated by the wife, maybe we'll see uh, that hinted at tonight, that were basically saying that really the more spiritual kind of marriage would be the kind of marriage in which um, we don't have intimate relations. What you have in Corinth is you had this, um, this strange mixture of... License on the one hand, chapter 6, 12 to 20, people in the church actually going to prostitutes, and then this, um, then this uh, asceticism of, you know, sexless marriages. Now, in all likelihood, what was happening was both things together in a sense. So um, maybe the idea was that... Um, we are so spiritual that we're like the angels. I mentioned last week that maybe there is a connection to the idea of speaking with the tongues of angels. Maybe they had such an idea of being so super spiritualized, so much a part of the coming age that they were now like the angels. And of course, you remember what Jesus says about the angels, neither marry nor given in marriage. And so... Very possible that this idea was, um, you know, that we are so much uh, people of the Spirit that we don't do that anymore. And uh, except, of course, when the men were going and visiting temple prostitutes. And so then Paul basically turns around and he says, 
um, this is my instruction to you, that each man is to have, and the idea of to have is to have sexually. Each man is to sexually have his own wife. In other words, he's not telling them to get married. He's telling them to have normal relations within marriage. There is, um, there is uh, actually nothing that is spiritual about a marriage that is celibate. In fact, that is dysfunctional. That is out of the norm. Uh, of course, there are going to be times where there are certain circumstances and physical uh, situations where, um, where normal intimacy will not be able to, um, you know, be carried on. But the norm in God's design is that one man will marry one woman and they will be one flesh and one flesh actually is reflected preeminently in the sexual union. There's more to the one flesh than, than sexual union, but the sexual union is, in a sense, um, the uh, primary expression of that one flesh union. And then Paul makes a little, well, he gives a command, stop defrauding one another, right? Um, NAS says stop depriving one another. This is the same word Paul uses back in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, when he's talking about defrauding by taking each other to court. The idea is to take something from somebody that doesn't belong to you. And Paul says stop defrauding each other. And then he makes a concession and he says, um, you know, it, there may be a time where uh, you, by mutual agreement, right, not just one spouse saying, hey, look, you know, um, I've decided to give up sex for Lent. Um, the idea is it has to be mutual agreement for a period of time for the purpose of prayer. And then Paul turns around and he says, but come back together again. In other words, resume normal relations with each other, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right. So Paul concludes that section that we saw last week with an important uh, verse that is uh, relevant for what we're going to look at tonight. So verse 7, Paul says, yet... I wish that all men were even as I myself am, which of course was unmarried. Uh, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And I'm probably going to uh, beat on this theme um, repeatedly until we're done with chapter 7. And that is, Paul is, is not um, saying that marriage is second best. But he's also not saying singleness is second best. Paul has a preference which will be, in a sense, fleshed out later in this passage as to why he, would, he wishes all men were as he. But understand, when he says that, what he's saying is he wishes that all men were gifted like he was, but then he immediately recognizes that some people have... They're gifted this way and other people are gifted that way. And God actually has sovereignly determined how people are gifted in this life. And if you're gifted with marriage, then be married and remain married. 
And if you're gifted with singleness, then remain pure and focused on the Lord and be content. And Paul's going to work out this these in a little more detail. But as we get to the passage tonight, what we're going to see is that Paul's instruction revolves around those who probably want to get married and those who are trying to dissolve their marriages. Now, that's either going to be through actual divorce or acting like they're not married, i.e. celibate marriages. And so that brings us to um, to verse 8. And um, it's hard to tell when Paul says, now concerning the things which you wrote, and then he gives the, the Corinthian slogan or quotation, it's hard to tell if, if the Corinthians actually had questions about each of these groups. What it seems like to me is that they had this, this general assertion or question, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And then what Paul does is in the remainder of the chapter shows how this kind of works out with different groups within the church. That's what it seems like to me. And so we have verse 8, but I say to the unmarried and to widows, to the unmarried and widows. You might notice in your notes, I actually just put the Greek expression uh, agamoi, which is the word that's used translated by the New American Standard as unmarried. Okay? Now, I do that for a reason. And uh, those on, uh, that sit in on the Tuesday Greek class know what the reason is. Okay? Um, this passage, this verse, actually has been kind of taken traditionally to mean um, just in the, most, in the broadest category possible, people that are not married, plain and simple. So the address in verse 8 looks like this, to every single unmarried type person and widows. That might just strike you a little odd because widows would be unmarried type people, right? But this is how the text has been traditionally understood, just simply unmarried. The word itself, so the, the word gamos is marriage. The word ah, gamos, it, it's a, what we would call an alpha privative. It just negates the state. So unmarried is okay, but without marriage uh, is, is also um, possible. Both of them mean the same thing, really. But how should we understand this expression, but to the unmarried and to widows? I want to make a suggestion to you. I want to suggest that agamoi, which is um, masculine, nominative, plural, masculine, okay? So we're talking men. And then widows, of course, would be women, okay? You, You've got to track with me a little better than this if we're going to make any headway, all right? So <clears throat> here's, here's my suggestion. So just, if you just follow me on this. This is what I'm going to suggest to you that the unmarried, that, what that category actually is. Most cultures, in fact, almost all cultures, 
have a specific word for a woman who loses her husband. For us, it is the term widow, right? In, In almost every culture, there is a specific word for widow and, strangely enough, very consistently, no masculine word for the counterpart to a widow. Okay? Following me? So you have the word widow, which means a woman who's lost her husband, but in many cultures you don't have a term that is in the masculine form of a husband who has lost a wife. Now, in English, we do. But I want to suggest to you one of the reasons why we have um, consistently throughout most cultures the idea of widow is because widowhood for a female always created real difficulties that men did not typically face. So, for instance, if you were in the first century and you were a man and you lost your wife, that was sad, but it didn't put you in a special category, all right, per se, Um, because you still had the ability to earn an income. In all likelihood, you would very quickly be remarried. On the other hand, if you were a female and you lost your husband, you were put into a position that was um, uh, often characterized by being in dire straits. Your breadwinner was gone. There weren't any government assistant programs. And in fact, widows oftentimes found themselves in a place of poverty. And so, one of the reasons why you have the word widow is because it creates, it is in fact a special category. Now stop and think, keep tracking with me. In English, we have a word for a person that's lost a husband, that's lost a wife. What is that word? Widower. The word widower is an anomaly. Most of the time when we have a word, and then we feminize it, it goes something like this. You have the word host. What's the feminine form? Hostess. Uh, actor. Actress. Author. <laughs> author S, right? Um, by the way, that kind of language is becoming more and more culturally offensive to people, but I don't really care. So, um, But we do have these feminized forms, right? But notice the way that the feminized forms go. Even the term woman is a derivation of the word man. It's that way in Hebrew, ish, and then the feminized form, isha. What's interesting about the word widower is that it comes from the feminine form and not vice versa. It's not widower, widower s. It is widow, widower. In other words, the word widow is an anomaly, or widower is an anomaly because it's derived from a feminine form. In other words, the feminine form comes first. Okay, you still tracking with me? We good? All right, so the word widower is reversed. Now, 
What's interesting is in the New Testament, actually in Greek literature, there is a word that is a male counterpart for widow, and it's almost never used. Rather, the word that's used is the masculine form of unmarried. Right? In other words, the most common way to depict a a husband who has lost a wife is not to call him a widower, but to call him unmarried. And so, um, I'm suggesting that Paul is addressing the demarried, all right, those who were married are not married, and he's addressing men who are no longer married because they are, in our word, widowers, and he is addressing widows. Now, actually, doesn't that parallel make better sense than just to say, Paul is just uh, uh, just uh, in, uh, uh, indistinctly addressing every unmarried person and widows. Okay. So the pattern, by the way, throughout the section is incredibly balanced, and I would suggest to you that if we just take uh, Agamoy as just simply um, uh, indistinctly unmarried and then plus widows, that what we do is we also throw the balance of the passage off. The reason is, is because Paul will go to the married, wife, husband, husband, wife, to the rest, brother, unbelieving wife, wife, unbelieving husband. In fact, throughout this passage, 12 times Paul will deal with husband, wife, or wife, husband, and he'll do it in a balanced and mutual way. And if that's the case, and then we come to this first example and say it's just simply unmarried and widows, then actually the whole pattern falls apart in the first category, right? So, I would, I would maintain that widowers, widows maintains the balance of the passage, and agamoi is probably Paul's preferred word for the demarried, okay? Of course, you know what I mean by demarried? You can't just say unmarried, because unmarried actually would imply... Um, Virgins and which he'll address later in this in the chapter. Okay, um, demarried indicates those who have been married but now are not presently, and I would suggest coupling it with widows. He's addressing widowers and widows. All right, there is it, that. Still on the train. Okay. All right. Good. Now, Paul says to those who are demarried by death of a spouse, it is good if you remain even as I. Now, Paul's encouraging at this point widows and widowers to remain single or unmarried, a a celibate lifestyle, and... um, now, by the way, is this, can you say that this is Paul's um, absolute principle across the board at all times? 
that the demarried by widowhood should remain even as he is. It's actually not because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul encourages the younger widows to do what? Remain as he is? No, he encourages them to marry because they could fall into the snares of Satan, all right? And then they go around and they're busybodies and all this kind of stuff, and Paul doesn't want that. So when Paul says it's good, widows and widowers, if you remain even as I, what he's saying is, uh, okay, well, there is a sense in which your slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, has some limited validity. So if you are among the demarried, I think that it's good that you remain in the state that you are in. Now again, Paul's going to explain why later, and of course, that is the person who is not married is able to devote themselves more and stay more focused on the things of the Lord, serving the Lord, whereas a married person has um, not necessarily divided interests, but diversified interests. Now, Paul turns around and Paul's a realist. Paul knows human nature. And he says, verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. Notice what the New American Standard does. You see what it does in this verse? I don't know what the ESV does. I didn't even look, but does the ESV put with passion in, huh? Oh, you brought your, okay. Um, the, the, the word just to burn, all right? We'll talk, we'll talk about that. Let me just say that um, there are certain ways to read the Bible that are really not overly helpful. And here was the common way that I understood this verse as a young man, all right? And that was what Paul's saying in verse 9 is try really, 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 really hard to stay single, but if you still at the end of the day have any sexual desires, marriage is, is better than burning in eternal flames. <laughs> That's the way I understood it. Now, I just want to say that I don't really think that that's the direction that Paul is, 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 is going with this. And by the way, how many people have found out the hard way that marriage is not the cure-all to a lustful heart? Hmm. So what is Paul saying? Gordon Fee says, it's doubtful whether Paul's point is quite so stark. Now, I want to I suggest a little bit of a, a tweak here on how we understand verse 9. Paul says, but if they do not have self-control, I would, I would actually say it's probably better to translate this um, if they are not practicing self-control. Okay? If they're not practicing self-control. 
Is there a difference between just saying if they don't have self-control and they're not practicing self-control? There's a big difference. The difference comes down to, it's pretty easy for people to say, hey, I have these longings and I have these desires and therefore, obviously, I don't have any self-control. I used to, this is a little on the embarrassing side now that I started to let it come out of my mouth, but I remember being, you know, 15, 16 years old, just wanting to serve the Lord, and I used to just say, Lord, I pray you just take away all my desires. God never answered that prayer for even like four seconds. God is often not going to answer prayer in such a way as to rewire your humanity. All right? Lord, I pray I'll never have another bad thought ever again. You know what that would require? A brain transplant. A heart transplant. A soul transplant. All right? God is not typically going to so rewire you that all of a sudden you have become dehumanized. Right? And so the idea of having desire is not the same as having lack of self-control. Self-control is actually the ability to control the desires. And therefore, I think that what Paul is saying is those who are not presently practicing self-control, that is, those who, who are actually committing sexual sin... Because they lack the self-control, so they're, they're actually not practicing self-control, i.e., they're committing sexual sin. Uh, I think Paul is saying, clearly, they don't have the gift, and it's better for them to marry. If they should marry. Now, <clears throat> marrying for the sake of Sexual desire alone is foolish. How long do those marriages last? I mean, you understand how now you could see this this verse being used to sort of legitimize a marriage just simply for the uh, ability to have sex. What a profound mistake. Utterly profound mistake. And so when we think about this, Paul's talking to, first of all, (laughs) he's not talking to 18-year-olds. He's talking to the demarried who are actually uh, not practicing self-control, demonstrating in all likelihood that they've not been given the same gift that Paul has been given. And then he says, you know, it's actually better for them to, to get married. Marriage is a better alternative to the demarried than burning. In other words, those without the gift should Mary. It's really not so hard. But I want to talk about what this word burn means. Yeah, see, um, sometimes the word's used in terms of judgment. There's no doubt about that. 
but the word also is used uh, frequently in the Septuagint and uh, 2 Corinthians 11 with the idea to burn with indignation or to burn with passion, right? Sort of hard to tell. You think Paul could have been a little more clear on what he was talking about if he wanted to be? I think he could have been a little more clear if he'd have wanted to be. Maybe he wanted to be a little less clear. Maybe he thought it was a pretty good thing for people to wrestle with. Is he talking about like burn in eternal perdition? Or is he talking about burn with passion? Either one is not good. Marriage is a better alternative to both of those. All right. The uh, handbook of the Greek text for 1 Corinthians argues it means to burn with sexual passion, and that's fine. But again, I just want to say that this is for the demarriage. So you've got to imagine the situation. So here you have, let's say you have a, a man or a woman. doesn't make any difference. Paul's addressing both. And, and here they are. They've lost a spouse, and they, just, they believe that, that, that God's calling them to a life of singleness. And yet what they find is they find themselves continually falling into temptation and giving in and falling into sin. And Paul says, listen, if you think that you ought to remain unmarried, but you're not practicing self-control and you're being consumed by your own passions, actually marriage is a better alternative for you than remain, trying to remain, unsing, uh, remain unmarried. Now, let me just make a couple of important points. And the first is this, is that um, whether a person feels like they have self-control or not, all sexual sin needs to be repented of. This is, this is not some sort of, um, um, you know, uh, legitimizing of the idea of, well, see, see, even Paul understood that I can't really control myself. No, the fact is, is that we are all uh, called purity in whatever station in life that we're in, and therefore all sexual sin must be repented of. And in fact, Paul's already been explicit that those who are unrepentant in the area of sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's be straight on this. A life of sexual immorality is not somehow justified because a person thinks they have lack of self-control. Which then also means that in the event that a person realizes, this is not my gift. You have to understand that abstinence is still required until God provides a spouse. Just for the sake of our young people, do not justify sinful behavior because you think, well, we're going to get married anyway. Do you know how many people, how many couples regret the fact that they did not wait and wish if they could turn the clock back that if they could do anything different, it would be that? even if it's with the person that they ended up marrying. 
let alone with, with, with other people that they ended up not marrying. The, the idea is, is that until God provides that spouse, there is only one way ahead, and that is the way of abstinence and purity. There's no excuses. We're talking to a guy that we ended up excommunicating from the church, and man, he had it all figured out. And, and so he, 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 he justified his own sin by, by this expression. I'm just a highly sexual person. Okay. Oh, okay. There you go. That's fine then. Right? No. No. Abstinence and purity remains the course until God provides a spouse. We need to instill this in our young people, right? We need to instill it in them. That, that as we've already seen in, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, sexuality is, is God's creation, it's God's design, it's God's gift, but it is God's gift on God's terms, it's, it's not a gift to be opened and played with at our own whim or our own will. God decides when it gets opened. And God says not until marriage. Period. Well, that brings us to the married. Verse 10. But... To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. All right? So we go now from the, the demarried, males and females, now to the married. And I would, I would suggest that context really dictate that we assume that what's in view here in verse 10 are two believers. Okay? Two believers. The reason I think that is because Paul's going to address those that are married to unbelievers in the next section. And so it seems that he's addressing people that are both believers. And then notice what he does. This is really, this is really quite good. He says, I give instructions. I give commands. I command. And then he turns around and he says, um, Not I, but the Lord. By the way, this little expression, I command, not I, but, and in this case, the Lord. um, First of all, this is going to be the strongest statement in, in this entire section for Paul. Paul is trying to deal and navigate through these, these issues with, with, uh, with, you know, uh, gentleness and he's trying to be delicate he's trying to be tactful he's trying he's realizing that there that this is the ideal but there are concessions but here he says i actually give command but then he turns around and he says but not i but the lord and by the way that's a, a recognized rhetorical device that's supposed to have uh, effect it's not as if paul says i'm going to command well actually it's not really me let me rephrase that let me correct myself it's the lord it, it, rather it, the design is to have a rhetorical effect used uh, to to make an impact and so what paul's rejecting here is the idea that married believers should divorce when he says not I, but the Lord, what he's, what he's actually referring to 
is, is not that there is a red letter edition of the Bible and the red letters count more than the black letters. Or there's the stuff that Jesus said and that's what's really important and then there's the stuff that I said and that's, you know, it's in smaller font. In fact, all scripture is God-breathed, right? It's not as if, have you, by the way, have you heard of these red-letter Christians? Have you heard of this expression? You know what, they, what a red-letter Christian is, is that it's usually someone that doesn't like what Paul said. <laughs> and so I would, I would just uh, argue that actually red-letter Christians, I don't think are paying much attention to what Jesus really said either. But it sounds kind of spiritual, right? Just kind of focusing on what Jesus says. But what Paul's saying here simply is, listen, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to command you. But really, this command is coming from the Lord because the Lord already taught on this. And in fact, he's making reference to Matthew chapter 19 and Luke chapter 16, where Jesus talked about the issues of divorce and remarriage. And in fact, in the Matthew chapter 19 passage, what Jesus actually says, you remember, you remember the passage, right? The, 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 the scribes and Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus. And so they ask him about divorce, right? And then you remember that Jesus turns around and he says, well, it's true that Moses uh, authorized a certificate of divorce, but... Remember what he said? It has not been that way from the beginning. And then he goes back and he says, for God said, right? So Moses said um, that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then you remember what Jesus said, right? Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate Then Jesus prohibits divorce except for the case of immorality and then says quite explicitly that if a person does marry after sending his wife away, exception clause excluded, he commits adultery. And so when Paul says, I command but not I but the Lord, what he's saying is, I have a a, a direct word, as it were, from the Lord Jesus. This is what would be called a, a dominical saying. That is an actual saying of our Lord. And here it is. A wife is not to divorce from her husband. That's the word that I have. That's that's what Jesus taught, and that's what I'm teaching you. A wife is not to divorce from a husband. Anybody think any see anything somewhat peculiar about the way that Paul starts this section? What's that? What's that? He starts with the wife leaving a husband. Okay? You have to understand that that is different. 
And there's a reason why it's different, and I'm not exactly sure what that reason is, but I have an idea. If we go back to the first section of chapter 7, you could well imagine that wives who wanted to have a super spiritual marriage and maybe didn't have one or had a husband that was continually going off, right? That maybe it is in, in Corinth, it was the wives who were actually initiating not only the slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but also initiating divorce. That's just a suggestion. Now, Paul uses a word for divorce here, karidzo, which means to divide, to separate, to separate by uh, departing. Um, he's going to use a different word uh, in, in verse 12, but Gordon Fee makes this comment, and this is important. He says, divorce in Greco-Roman culture could be legalized by means of documents, but more often... It simply just happened. In this culture, divorce was divorce, whether established by a document or not. Either the man sent his wife away, divorce in the sense of verse 12, or else either of them left the other to separate. And so Paul says that the wife is not to actually depart from the marriage to her husband. Now, what's also interesting is you have to understand, in Jewish culture, Jewish wives were not permitted to initiate divorce. That leads some scholars to think that Paul's not talking about actual divorce. The problem is, is that the number of Jews in the Corinthian assembly was relatively small. It's predominantly a Gentile congregation. So I don't think that the, the, the argument holds because in Greco-Roman culture, women actually did, especially women of higher status, a higher class, actually did initiate divorce at times. And so Paul simply says she shouldn't do that. But the interesting thing is in verse 11, Paul makes a concession. Now, in the New American Standard, notice this is um, in parentheses, verse 11. Okay? In the Greek text, actually, there are hyphen marks on, on both sides indicating parenthesis. Paul says in verse 11, notice this. But if she does leave, okay? so you, you, you get the drift, right? She shouldn't leave. But if she does leave, and Paul's making a concession here, and the concession is significant because what Paul realizes very clearly is that there may have been situations in which the alternative to the ideal had either happened or was going to happen. 
In other words, he says, hey, don't leave your husbands. But then he also is a realist and he knows that there are going to be times where wives actually don't follow that instruction. And he turns around and makes a concession. And the concession is in the event that the general condition, don't leave your husband, has not been followed. But notice Paul's teaching remains consistent. The theme throughout all of this will be remain as you are. And so notice what he, what he says. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Literally, she must remain demarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And so, Paul says, if you don't follow the advice and you don't follow the command and you don't follow the Lord's teaching and a woman ends up leaving her her husband, she actually only has one of two options if she disobeys the first command, and that is that she is either going to remain demarried or she's going to reconcile with her husband. So the only alternative to staying unmarried for a person who had illegitimately divorced a spouse was reconciliation. shouldn't really surprise us, right? Reconciliation is it's part of the gospel. It's part of what should be happening in the church all the time, right? So you can imagine Paul saying, you know what, if, 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 if you think things are so bad that you have to leave or you just don't like him because he snores or you don't like him because he got fat or you don't like him because he's got bad breath or you don't like him because or whatever, uh, he's not spiritual enough, he doesn't speak with the tongues of angels or whatever the case may be. And, and if you depart from him, your options at that point are either to remain in a demarried state or reconcile with your husband, Paul's not addressing all possible circumstances and situations. These are general principles, and they're within a certain historical context. But the assumption here is that the believing wife has divorced without grounds. And then 11b, he says, and the husband is not to divorce a wife. He's got to do that for, you know, egalitarian purposes. Just as sure as the wife is not to divorce the husband, so the husband is not to divorce the wife. And so Paul concisely applies this to the husband. And I would, I would suggest that the concession that's in the parentheses uh, no doubt still applies if it's the husband who ends up leaving the wife. But what we have in verses 10 and 11 is really this tragic testimony Tragic testimony to the world when believing spouses have weak marriages or dissolved marriages. I mean, we, we preach a gospel of reconciliation and yet don't practice it very well, right? 
So Paul recognizes, in conclusion, Paul recognizes that people who are demarried may not have the gift to remain that way. And rather than to continue in a state of burning, they are allowed to marry, obviously taking the later counsel, but only in the Lord. So here's a question. But if you read that and you think, you know what, I have trouble exercising self-control. Um, what if God doesn't bring me someone? I tell you, that's an, that's an agonizing thing. To want to be married. To want to actually have a life partner and God not to bring one. You have to understand that as long as God doesn't bring one, then your calling at that stage is clear. One of the things that has been just grievous over the years is to see either unmarried or demarried people want to get married so badly that they lower their standards of who they're going to marry simply to be married. And that never goes well, ever. To just marry the, the, the first warm body that comes along is a tragic mistake. And so if you are unmarried or demarried, I would just, I would, and, and, and you think that you're supposed to be married, I would just urge you to say, you wait. You don't have to wait until you have a sign from heaven. Marry this one, okay? Those signs are not forthcoming, okay? But God has given us wisdom. And God has given us discernment. And how many of God's people end up chucking wisdom and discernment out the window because they met somebody online who says they're a Christian? You think I've got some stories filed away in the memory banks of really bad decisions just because they wanted to be married. And so if God doesn't bring someone and you're convinced that he should, you need to remain pure during that time and you need to make sure you're not feeding your lusts. It's a little little, um, hypocritical to just be feeding your lusts through various things and then say, well, I don't have self-control. You might be surprised if you stop feeding your lust. Maybe God has something for you other than marriage. Finally, as Christians, we need to realize that our, that our marriages are testimonies to the world around us. World is too abstract. Our marriages are testimonies to our families. 
and to our friends and to our children. Our marriages are a, a testimony and and when we live in a in a in a church culture where we trivialize marriage through illegitimate divorce and then remarriages, what we're doing is we're demonstrating that the gospel actually doesn't work on this level. Do you understand that? When we just end marriages, jump into other marriages, what we're saying is that the very reconciliation that has occurred between God and me through the blood of Christ is great vertically, but it doesn't work all that well horizontally because I just find that I'm just, you know, just have um, uh, irreconcilable differences. You understand that in the gospel, there are no irreconcilable differences. Oh, there are differences. But there's nothing, there's no such thing as irreconcilable when you adhere to, believe in, and trust in the gospel of reconciliation. And so, we end up minimizing, oftentimes, through bad testimonies in our marriages, the power of the gospel and the gospel's beauty. And, and yet, think, on the other hand, those who have actually persevered through hard times those who have endured with each other those those who have those who have learned the blessed word forbearance those who have learned the blessed word forgiveness and they've endured with each other they've persevered and and now They enjoy the sweeter fruits of a marriage that's lasted even though there have been tough times. Paul's admonition should remind us that that we are called to persevere and to endure. And in due time, God will bring the sweetness of endurance You know, anybody that thinks like the first five years of marriage are the best is a total idiot and probably divorced (laughs) in their sixth year. The first, let me just tell you, if you're not married, let me just, let me just prepare you. The first five years are awful. Terrible. That's an exaggeration. They're tough. Right? Those first five years, you're like, what did I do? I'm thinking to myself, I married Ricky Ricardo. I married this crazy person. What did I do? She's thinking, I married a Nazi. What did I do? Not a real Nazi, you know, just a metaphorical one. And at times you wake up and you want to kill each other. Is this just Ariel and me or is it, I mean, anybody else, right? I know Birdie's wanted to kill Vic and even past five years. So, <laughs> but you stick it out. You hang in there. 
You rely on God's grace. You get sanctified. Man, marriage can sanctify you. And then, maybe it gets better. Maybe it doesn't. But at the end of the day, God gives us all the grace that we need to honor him by sticking it out. And there are times where the joy is inexpressible. And you laugh together and you enjoy life together. And there are other times where you're just crying together. And then worse times where just one of you is crying. And the one's crying wants the other one to be crying, but they're not crying. But you persevere by the grace of God. And Christ is put on display as better than the world's alternatives to hardship in marriage. Christ is put on display as, as the one who, who really can bring healing and joy. And Christ is put on display as the one who, who really is Lord of all life. And he's the real joy giver. And he's the one that can actually do so much more than, than we could ever imagine. And so, so even good marriages have hard times, right? And yet if Christ is there right in the midst and there's the aroma of Christ, even in the hardship, he is glorified and it is a testimony to the power of God's grace and a testimony to the reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you think, wow, look at that. This year, the Borgmans will have been married for 30 years. 30 years. I know, I got married when I was 12, but it's, it's an amazing thing. You go, well, how did you do 30? My, our niece asked us, how did you stay married for 30 years? You know what our answer is? The grace of God. I want to say, because Ariel made such an outstanding choice, she couldn't have gone wrong. But that's not the right answer. It's the grace of God. It's the power of Christ. And so, stay married. Stay married. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, which at first glance seems pretty irrelevant to us. And yet, Lord, we ask that we would soak it in. We'd realize what you call us to. We pray for help. Lord, we ask that you would help those of us who are a little more on the stubborn side to learn gentleness and deference. We pray, Father, that you would help us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
especially with our spouses. And we ask that in all these things, Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.